we're heading into the book of Judges again. I think it's a fascinating book for us to be reading. Uh, 20, 20, 20, 21st century people reading about some of the most horrendous stuff going on. Um, but reminding ourselves that this is the journey of God's people. This is uh, written in a way for us to not, not, not act upon. Uh, I think it's really important when we come to the parts of the Bible um, which are so distant from where we are, they are not there for us to act on, not to go and do the things that we see portrayed there. Uh, there is absolutely no possible way in which we can take the final verses of this chapter and carry severed heads around. That's so wrong. And, and why? Why is it in the Bible? And yet here we are today saying that kind of pattern of behavior is, is not what we should do. And it's really important for us to, to continue to nail that issue on the wall, look into it, and consider it as we work through a book like this. One of the reasons is because God is taking the whole of the world on a journey of calming. The ancient world was a vicious, horrible place. The ancient world was a world which understood power and authority and the God that ruled by the gods that were on the winning side. And so there is a willingness for God to condescend to use the language that was understood at that time to speak into the world at that time and at the same time to take us on a journey where ultimately we see Jesus who acts in such a remarkably different way and calls his people to do the same. So that's really something I want to just keep coming back to uh, as we work through this story. But we're halfway through. Uh, at, the, at this point, we're halfway through the story of this man Gideon. Last week, we looked at Gideon, this, this quivering judge, this dithering judge, this judge who was fearful, a judge who wasn't sure whether God would be with him, a judge who kept on asking for evidence again and again. We left him at the end of last, last week with uh, a dry fleece surrounded by wet ground. The night before, it had been a wet fleece surrounded by dry ground. Gideon had once again, even though God had said, I will be with you, he'd asked again, please, please confirm that you're going to be with me. On the one hand, as we saw last week, we want to shake Gideon and say, come on, God has said he's going to be with you. And on the other hand, we lean into that and we say, thank you, Lord, that there are examples like Gideon because I feel like that. I feel fearful. I feel as though I need to be reminded again and again, even though you've said that you will be with me, I feel as if I need to be reminded again and again that you will be with me. And so I am thankful for the weakness of God's people portrayed in His Word. Because I sit alongside that and I say, that's me as well. But I need to also learn to have a greater confidence. And so, 
I don't know where we all are this afternoon on our journey of Christian faith. Some might be observing that Christian faith. You might be considering that Christian faith. The conversations I've had over the years with folks as we've, we've, we've been talking about that moment of commitment to faith in Jesus, one of the things that is so often a barrier is that fear of will I be strong enough to sustain this? One of the great messages of the book of Judges is the answer to that question is no. You will not be strong enough to sustain this. But the God who you worship is stronger than your weakness. The God who you place your faith in, the God who I place my faith in, is greater than my faithlessness. And that's the reminder that Judges gives us again and again. We see Gideon, the unsure, fearful. But we also see Gideon reaching this this moment in history alongside his people, God's people, who have once again rejected God. Chapter 6, the previous chapter, 6 and 7, go together. The story of Gideon opens like this. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. For seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. They lived like dispossessed hermits, fearful and terrified in their own land. Because God allowed and gave them into the hands of this powerful people, the Midianites, so that they would reflect that they need to trust in the God who saves them. Come back to me. You've worshipped the gods of the people of this land. You've rejected me. I will allow you to, to end up in the ultimate outcome of doing that, which is to be possessed by the people as well. And now I call upon you to see the situation that you are in so that you will return to me. That is if that's the cycle of judges again and again and again. And so good Gideon enters into the moment. And he enters into a moment where the Midianites and all of those who oppress God's people are there as an instrument of showing that, that animosity towards God. Powerful, oppressive enemies in the Old Testament are there as a picture of people who are rebelling and rejecting the God of God's people. And so they stand outside of the hope of God and they They turn against God by turning against God's people. And so God says, right, now is the moment for me to liberate you. But let me make one thing really clear, he effectively says, is that I am going to, and this is really the first section, I am going to move you from your fearfulness of your own weakness to faith in my weakness. That sounds a strange thing, doesn't it? God is saying, if you you take the story of Gideon, all along he's been fearful. He's been fearful of his own strength. He's been fearful of his own capability. 
He's been fearful of whether God is with him. And God says to him, right, I am going to release you from that fear by allowing you to have faith in what looks like my weakness. That's, that's remarkable. But that's what God is doing. And so we enter into the story. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, having gathered all of these men, these fighting men, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My strength has saved me. One of the things about the ancient world is that more fighting men is what you want. <laughs> if you're going to go into battle, fighting men and the kind of disposable nature of humanity in the ancient world of, of warfare, bodies are like bullets. You want more bullets if you're going to go into a battle. And so God takes Gideon and he says, you are too strong for this battle. So I want you to go and I want you to allow any of the men who are fearful to go. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left and 10,000 remained. <laughs> Two-thirds of the army disappeared. That's two-thirds of your metaphorical bullets that have gone. Two-thirds of your strength has disappeared. 32,000 has become 10,000 against a sea of opposition described as being their camels are more than the grain of sand on the sea. I, I think, I think the, the writer there is, is writing in a way which is, is trying to use hyperbole to, to create this picture in your mind of how overwhelming the opposition was. We cannot possibly ne uh, count the grains of sand on the sea, we, uh, on the seashore. We can't do that. But in reality, <laughs> we would stand a chance of counting the camels in that valley on that day. So, so let's, let's allow the narrator to, to write in the way that he's trying to get the message over, not in a literal sense. We can't look at the Bible here and say, well, that is just, the Bible's not true because it's impossible to have that many camels in the valley. That's not what the narrator is doing. He's saying, I want you to imagine when it feels like even the camels are more than the grains of sand on the seashore. That's the kind of picture he's trying to paint. He's, this is an overwhelming battle that you are facing. And two-thirds of your forces have disappeared. Then God says, still too strong. Verse 4, you're still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you. I will say this one shall go with you. But if I shall, uh, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon takes them down to this stream. And God thins them out. The picture is basically this. If you see a man 
kneeling down and drinking the water on all fours, he's gone. If he cups the water up and drinks it like a dog with his tongue, he's in. I remember when I was a child, my kind of getting to grips with all of the stories of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament stories, was in a really big old book, which was like a cartoon strip with, with the little bubbles of text. It was, it was fantastic, real great colors, little bubbles of text. I didn't realize there, I was probably a really visual learner there. Didn't, nobody talked about that kind of stuff there. He was just a, he was not very clever because he used cut, uh, cartoon strips rather than real words. But looking through that page, those pages, this story of Gideon really came to life. <clears throat> and again and again, from that moment as a child, right the way through, there is this justification that is not in the Bible as to why the 300 men went with him. This idea that, well, they were the ones who were ready and on guard and all the rest of it. Now, actually, look at how the text describes them. God says, I'm going to take the 300 dogs. See that? Your 10,000 men are way too strong still against more camels than the sand on the seashore. So I'm going to choose the dogs. That is, that is only in the past, well, I think I probably came to terms with it fairly recently, but it has really impressed on my mind again as I've been preparing for this. God says, you've got 32,000 men, that's way too many. Any are fearful, send them home, it becomes 10,000. 10,000 is way too many. You're going you're to say that we did it, so I want you to choose the dogs. I want you to choose those who I will use a, 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 a metaphorical description which says <laughs> they are the guys you really don't want to go into battle with. We, you and me, we cannot comprehend the power of God until we are stripped of our own self-reliance. We cannot. In fact, the journey of our Christian life is more often than not just that lesson. The journey of our faith in Jesus Christ is more often than not just that lesson. The experiences that we go through are again and again that lesson. We need to be stripped of our self-reliance so that we can see the power of God. That's the message that God is giving Gideon and saying to the people, this is what you need to hold on to. Here we are, thousands of years later. I, I, I love that we, we, we prayed that prayer and, and kind of enlarged on that prayer of Francis of Assisi, 1200 AD. The sentiments of that prayer could be written now about our attitudes towards each other. It's just as relevant. But what God's people learned with Gideon 
is just as relevant now. We need to be stripped of our self-reliance. You know, when we realize that, then we can realize that faith is actively looking for those opportunities to remove self-reliance. You know, we hold on to it so much that God has to, He has to prise our fingers off self-reliance little by little because we, we grip onto it. A growing faith is when we say, I see that I'm holding on to this. I want to let go of this. I want to, I want to release my fingers from the self-reliance that I have on me. On the ability for me to save me. On the ability for me to achieve. Do you find that that step of deciding to follow this Jesus of Nazareth who claims to be the Son of God it is a big step to take? You will probably, in unpeeling that question, you will probably realize it's because you are relying on yourself in some way. Do you find that you are unable to grow in your faith? <laughs> he says, looking into the mirror saying, yes, that is me. Why? Because I am too conscious of my own self-reliance. So that's the first thing. It is when Gideon is stripped of that self-reliance with 300 men left that he is then able to hear the fear of the enemy. Look at what happens. God says right now. <laughs> In fact, it's really interesting. Up to now, Gideon has been the one asking God for confirmation. He's been the proactive requester of confirmation. And now, God says, now that you have taken that step, I will be the proactive giver of confidence to you. Go down into the camp. Verse 15. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. That is an amazing verse. In the middle of this chapter. Why? Because Gideon and his servant Purah, they go down into the camp. You can imagine there's just masses of people and therefore for them to kind of mingle in as just two guys in the dark. He listens to two men holding a conversation. And the conversation goes like this. I had a dream last night. And a barley loaf rolled down the hill, smashed the tent to bits. And his friend says, that can only be Gideon. That can only be that, that God of that Gideon. Gideon, Gideon look, listens to this and he says, I worship you. Why? Why does he worship God at that point? Because, because he realizes God is not just the author of the events. He's the author of the story behind the events. He's the author of the narrative. He's the author of what is in the minds of all of the individuals as part of that journey. How they perceive what is going on. What happens as a result of that? Gideon becomes a worshipper of God. 
because he sees that God is in everything. He sees that God is in this camp now. God is, in, God is working with these two men now. They don't realize it. But they are speaking hope to me now because God is working. And so what happens? He goes away. Get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands and 300 men take torches and pitchers that cover the torches and and trumpets and they surround the hillside and then at the command of Gideon the pitchers are broken the torches uh, become visible and the trumpets are sounded can you imagine darkness you ever been in one of those situations of true darkness? It must have been far more prevalent in the ancient world. True darkness. Where suddenly you are surrounded on, all the way around on this mountainside with, with 300 lights and trumpets that are sounding in the darkness. And what does God do? is he throws the enemy into confusion. They attack each other and they run. What's happened? What has happened in that moment? God is saying, I will leave it to the point where you are totally aware, Gideon, that you have done nothing. Where where all of Israel will realize that the the victory there is nothing to do with them. They haven't raised a finger before the battle opens up and individuals start killing each other and, and they're still on the hillside holding their torches and blowing their trumpets because God has created confusion amongst his enemies. That is one of the fingerprints of God. Creating confusion amongst his enemies. Do you know what? I think we probably see that more than ever in our day. We see confusion. We see people who will be absolutely conviction-bound, opposed to God, but are confused about everything else. Fighting amongst themselves without any kind of way forward. We say, wow. This is, not, this is nothing that we could, we could create. It's what God does. When God says, the more that you rely on yourselves, the more I will throw you into confusion, the less you rely on yourselves, the more I will bring you clarity and peace. Romans chapter 1 says just this. Romans chapter 1 and verse 24. Because of, God's, because of the people of this world rejecting God, 
Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. What's God doing there? He's saying, if you want to go down this line, I will throw you into confusion. But what you will say, what you will see, is the victory is mine. So here we are. The victory is Gideon's. The conclusion of this is absolutely remarkable. When the 300, verse 22, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Bathshitta towards Zerara, as far as the border of Abel Mahola, near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. That might not seem surprising apart from this. Who was in the army in the first place? Men of Asher, Naphtali, the, the, uh, Manasseh, the very men who were in the army before and who were fearful and disappeared become the beneficiaries of the victory. That's remarkable. Shouldn't the beneficiaries, be beneficiaries of the victory be the 300 who stood around the mountainside? Shouldn't they be the ones who have the victory? Shouldn't they be the ones who are the beneficiaries? Not in the economy of God. Because God says, I will bring the victory and you will benefit. Because that's what grace is. Grace is you receiving overwhelming benefit at my expense. You will get what you don't deserve. That's grace. That's what we see in this story. But what we are also confronted with is a God who works like that. A God who says, I will make myself seemingly weak and then win the victory. Do you see? Gideon, you can be released, freed, liberated from relying on yourself to relying on my weakness. I'll strip you down to 300 men. I'll make it, in human terms, impossible for you to win the victory. And then you'll gain the benefit. Why does God do that? Because He's preparing for another battle. Precisely because He is preparing for another battle. He's preparing for another battle for all of humanity where He will say, and once again, I will strip myself to absolute weakness and then gain the victory. It starts when Jesus sweats drops of blood in Gethsemane. 
where he begins the journey of what seems like impossible odds. Where he has lost everything. Where the victory is gone in human terms. Where God has become so profoundly weak that he cannot possibly win victory. Then he puts Jesus in front of Pilate. John chapter 19 and verse 7. When Pilate heard this, this claim that God, Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Pilate says at that moment in time, you're the weak one. (laughs) You've got nothing. I'm the one with power. Don't you realize I've got all the power? A bit like that army down in the valley who've got more camels than you can count, who would turn to 300 men and say, Don't even begin to think of attacking us because we've got all the power. Don't you see? You have got nothing. That's what Pilate says to him. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who has handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. That first bit of that of Jesus' reply, which is absolutely critical. You would have absolutely no power, Pilate, unless it was given to you from above. Don't you realize it is God who is giving you my weakness? He's giving you my weakness because it is in my weakness that victory will be forged. Because you will never be able to say, we will never be able to say, I achieved my salvation. And Jesus will always be able to say, it is in my weakness that you will profit that you will benefit, and that I will be seen to be triumphantly, gloriously victorious. I will win in my weakness. And that's precisely why we no longer carry severed heads around. It's because Jesus became the severed one. Jesus became the broken one. Jesus became the weak one so that we can turn around and we can say, do you know what? I no longer have to be strong. (laughs) I can rest in the seeming weakness of God because I know that His weakness is greater than any human power is greater than any human authority. It is liberating to be able to do that. And I pray that our hearts 
in the toughest of situations, in the difficulties that we face, are able to find a confidence that we can lean into the weakness of God because that is our strength.